My next guest was the deputy mayor and chair of planning and housing here in the city. But after 12 years on city council, she made the choice not to run for re-election during the last municipal election. Uh, called by Mayor John Tory, a champion of housing, Anna Bailao joins me now. Anna, thanks for joining me. Good morning, May. How are you? I'm good. Good. Really good. Good. Well, why why did you choose to leave politics in the throes of everything that we're going through when it comes to affordable housing and the crisis that we um, are facing right now? Um, well, it, it it had been twelve years, and I always came into politics as. Um, a way to contribute, to give my contribution. Um, but I w- always wanted to make sure that I would be able to do something else, right? <laughs> that, that I always had skills that to always do politics by a choice and not because I would have to. And for me, that was always important, keeping that balance. And so, uh, so I decided that after 12 years, it'd be a good time to let somebody else have that privilege, that experience, continue to do the work in an area that I'm very passionate about. I think there's many ways that, that you can contribute to the city, and, and I intend to do so. I intend to continue to work um, on, on city issues and continue to give my time and meet you know, different organizations as a volunteer as well. Um, but I thought that in politics, it would be a good time just to... Um, to, to let somebody else and have the come in and, and have the privilege of representing Ward Nine and and contribute to this great city that we have. And we'll talk about your your new role as much as you want to talk about it. But uh, as you look back at those twelve years, Anna, uh, are they fond memories? What what do you think about your legacy and what you've been able to accomplish and do within the city? There's there's definitely hard times, Um, you know, when when you deal with an issue such as housing, for example, that is such a complex issue. And it's 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 been around for a long time. Uh, Actually, uh, shortly after I started, somebody gave me a copy of um, uh, an ad that was posted in the Toronto Star back in the 40s. I think it was 45 or 47 or something like that. But it was the mayor of the time. Uh, advertising that uh, because there is no housing for people not to come to Toronto. It was a public notice back in uh, actually 44. It was, and they said, listen, this is a tough issue. (laughs) It's been around for a long time. Sometimes it gets better. Sometimes it gets worse, but it's a tough issue. And it's a tough issue because it's also so um, connected to the well-being of the individuals and to the well-being of our cities. And sometimes it's not recognized as such. So you're going to have good times and bad times. And it's true. We had some amazing times, you know, when, when we were able to um, secure funding to repair TCHC or we changed from like selling land in Toronto to just the cash to instead use it for to create affordable housing. Um, you know, when we created the modular housing, like that, that feeling of speaking with the residents that some of them had been on the streets for one year, two years, it's a great feeling. But then you have also have the really bad moments when you have somebody in front of you that has been on the waiting list for six years, seven years, eight years, and and you, they're desperate. They're telling you their life story. And even though you're working so hard, it just, it, it, you can't put them ahead of the other people and, and there's a huge waiting list and there's still uh, that struggle. And, and it's so hard. It was some of the toughest moments to, to have to say, listen, I understand. I, I get it. I, I'm trying to deal with this. But right now, 
I, I cannot do anything. I cannot put you in front of the other, you know, 50,000 people, 50,000 families that are waiting for affordable housing in the city. And, and that's, it's tough. It's frustrating. Um, so there, there's definitely been tough moments, but I think that at the same time, I would get energy and motivation to work even harder when I had some of these moments. Yeah. And I think, you know, even you talking about that, that newspaper clipping shows that housing is this historical issue that always comes to the surface in this city. You're now... Go and ahead. then it, it depends a lot on, on how governments deal with it, right? Yeah. So we had a huge uh, national program right after the Second World War, right? Mm-hmm. It was huge. The, the constructions, you know, a lot of the small um, um, bungalows, you know, 800 square feet that we see in the city, which used to be even parts of the suburbs of the city, they were responses to the housing crisis that we had at that time. You know, a lot of the apartment buildings, it was a response to the rent, the lack of rental that happened and that the boom that, that was happening in, in construction of rental in this city in the 60s and the 70s. And thank God it did because it's still sort of the rental that we have in the city. So can we respond um, with the same that determination right now. And um, I worked on this issue for the 12 years that, that I was at City Hall. And one thing that is good it is finally all three orders of government are calling it a crisis. Mm-hmm. And all are starting to take action on it. So that's a good sign. Um, but I still feel that we're not treating it as the crisis that it is, to be honest with you. Tell me about your new role. You're now the head of affordable housing and public affairs at Dream, and and how this hopefully keeps you in that same trajectory of uh, making changes where we need to make yeah. changes. So one of the things that became very clear in my role is that at City Hall was that you know to deal with this issue you need all three orders of government because it you know different aspects of legislation and and things that impact the housing uh, uh, availability and, and production affects three orders of government. You need the, the nonprofit sector because they have skills um, to deal with some of the, the communities and some of the issues in, in social housing that nobody else has, to be honest with you, and the ingenuity. So you need a strong nonprofit sector and you need the private sector. You need the private sector to be part of the solution, especially at the point that we are, where we actually need action, not only in the deep affordable housing, like it was a few decades ago, we need action all along the housing spectrum, because we are a city today that if you're a nurse coming out of school and and you're desperately needed in our hospitals in downtown, probably going to have a really hard time affording your home. And, And so we need to make sure that we have action on all along the, the continuum, and you need all these three uh, involved. And and so I had been I have been working on the government side, and and now I'm uh, on the uh, on the private side with uh, with somebody with a company that has been doing a lot of work uh, already with nonprofits and with the government and producing housing, but they really want to scale it back because. They also see the, the the huge need in our cities, in our communities, and they're very community oriented. So that excited me, that alignment of values. And for me really to understand uh, the other side and how we're able to scale it up and produce even more um, uh, with these partners as well. So 
it's exciting. So I'm going to be, now it's going to be all day, all housing. So, you know, in the last 12 years, it was in, on the other part of the equation. And I still had to balance my housing work and my planning work with, you know, the work of representing the ward and dealing with the constituents and dealing with all that. Over the next few years, you know, it's going to be 100% just, just, just housing. And, uh, and I think I'm going to be able to continue to give back, but also learn, you know, and, and try to uh, uh, innovate and, and scale it up. Because I think now what we really need is to scale, is scale and partnerships, partnerships, partnerships. We need to come together, all these different sectors, more and more to enhance the uh, capabilities that each one has uh, and, and to, to, to scale up the production of housing in the city and in this country. I'm curious what you think of the 2023 housing action plan that was passed by council. Finally, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> so I always make fun of uh, uh, some of my colleagues would ask me, like, are you going to be watching council yeah. when you leave? And I'm like, God, no. <laughs> God, no. And I caught myself taking like a, a little peek on the day. I feel like it was out. everywhere this week. You couldn't <laughs> avoid just all the news coming out of City Hall this week. So uh, I really um, uh, appreciate it. It, it. Some of these items had been around for a long time. Mm. Uh, rooming houses, long time. There's been lots of votes that we tried um, and it, it, extremely frustrated. We had done a really, really good work, if I can say so, in, in bringing together all kinds of city departments uh, to, to have a rights-based approach to this le- legislation, and we, we weren't able to get it through at the end of last term, so I was really happy to see that. Uh, this idea that, you know, we need to end exclusionary zoning. Sometimes people think about zoning as, you know, oh, this thing that is going to, you know, allow you to build, you know, and how to build, but it has such profound social impacts in the fabric of our city, because it is excluding certain people from living in certain neighborhoods. And we don't think of Toronto and Canada as something like that, but that is happening. And if we don't change, you're going to have a completely different city in a few decades, a very segregated um, city that I don't think people envision when we talk about Canada. And when we, we talk about our values, and I think we need to deal with that. So there's obviously the economic issue of it and people being able to afford the homes, but it's also all that, the, the, the social consequences that come with that, that, that when we talk about mixed communities, the importance that it has on the social fabric, right? On kids, you know, learning from each other, learning the struggles of somebody that is maybe, you know, doesn't have the, their parents don't have the income that, that, that they do. Um, and learn about the struggles, but at the same time, the other kids looking at them and seeing some opportunities and aspiring to to see some opportunities. Right. All that is really important. And and if we don't deal with some of this exclusionary zoning and allow for um, all kinds of you know what we call the missing middle, the fourplexes, mm-hmm. the small apartments in, into our neighborhoods, pretty soon you're only going to ha- be able to have in our neighborhoods people that are able to afford two million dollars, three million dollars homes. Yeah, I'm gonna, I want to hear what you have to say about the Green Belt, but we're going to take a quick 
break, Anna, and we will be right back. We're talking with Anna Bailao. She is the former deputy mayor and chair of the Planning and Housing Committee. We'll be right back. We're back with former deputy mayor and chair of Planning and Housing, and now the head of Affordable Housing and Public Affairs at DREAM, Anna Bailao. Anna, you know, you were talking about uh, just the, some of the changes that have been proposed in this 2023 Housing Action Plan by City Council and the fact that, you know, some of these rules and, and laws that have been put in place have to kind of be opened up so that the exclusionary laws have to be opened up so that there is more room for us to grow as a city. Uh, thoughts on the green belt and uh, what is coming out of that with this potential investigation by the OPP um, and, and just the concerns people have about us whittling away this protected area. Um, well, we know that uh, the government has been saying that other governments has always have always you know tinkered with it and that we need to adjust and that's all fine and dandy but you know it is a big huge adjustment it is a lot of land um, and and um, it, it's a bit um, even um, ironic because at the same time that they're putting forward legislation to intensify the communities, they're giving this opportunity to continue with sprawl. So doesn't make any sense, even uh, with the plan that they're trying to put forward. They're, I think they're in, that, in this case, they're you know, speaking on both sides of their mouth. But um, it is more expensive because the infrastructure has to continue to be expanded to the suburbs. It is uh, less environmentally friendly because people will spend more time stuck in the cars and, and driving and uh, spending less time with their families and, and um, enjoying themselves and contributing for economic growth. <laughs> um, and, um, and, and we know that, you know, it, these are some, some of the lands are agricultural lands, and we all know, you know, price of food, how, how it's being affected, how our climate is being affected. We've all felt some of the crisis. So um, I don't think this is the way to go. Um, I think that that um, there's a lot of questions. I think the investigation um, clearly. I'm sure that, that this is something the government is not looking forward to, uh, and they probably want to get it uh, in and out and done as soon as possible. I know that uh, any politician would would want that. So um, we'll see what the OPP will, will say. But everybody that I talk to. Does I think that there's their feel, that feeling out there that it's like it, there's definitely a lot of coincidence. Mm -hmm. Let's put it this way, yep. <laughs> and and I think everybody um, believes that uh, you know uh, the OPP or some kind of investigation we should look at it. Uh, even you know people that are very supportive of of, uh, of the government um, believe that if you know if there's nothing wrong, they'll come through, and and I think it's better. Um, it, it's actually um, too bad that they went this way with the green belt because they did have some good stuff in some of the legislation that this government um, put together. You know, they have been bold in some of the legislations. They, there, there's only a couple of things that I, I think that has been short-sighted. The green belt and the fact that, you know, um, a lot of the, you know, waivers in terms of costs that they're giving the the, the, the industry, the projects, they, they say, okay, we're not going to get new homeowners to pay for this, but then they just download it to the cities, which are the ones that have the least 
capability of paying for these things. So I think they, they, they need to have the conversations with municipalities about saying, okay, we're going to waive these VCs because there's way too much cost on, on the production of homes. You know, now government fees are almost like 20% and we have to reduce this. Fine. I think a lot of people would agree with that. But let's have the conversation as well of who is going to pay for that? Who is the level of government that then can compensate for some of these costs that are needed? You know, the roads are needed to build, the community centers, the libraries, all this stuff needs to happen at the same time that you're building homes as well. So I think these were the two shortcomings in some of the stuff that the government did. Now, they did some, some you know, they, they indicated uh, that, that municipalities need to get rid of the exclusionary zoning and, and um allowing three units in, in, in the land. So some of these things, they've, they've been pushing the municipalities, which I think is good. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, all people talk about is the green belt, which mm. it goes against everything else that they're trying to do, which is transit-oriented communities, intensification around transit, which is the right things to do. So it's, uh, it's, it's really bad that they went this way and put it together in these bills because uh, it doesn't make sense. It's not consistent with the message message they're trying to deliver. And I think is not uh, good economic policy, good environmental policy and good housing policy. And I think when we're talking about the housing crisis, you know, from what I've heard from those that I've interviewed, this is really about affordable housing. And I can't imagine affordable housing being built uh, in the Greenbelt area, because again, as you said, you know, we're talking about transit, we're talking about accessibility to these places as well. I want to get your thoughts on a couple of news stories before we go, Anna. One of them is uh, an article that I found in the Star of the story of a developer who had a lottery for a chance uh, for prospective tenants to rent out 900 affordable rental units. And the developer drew the 900 names, but only filled 100 suites. And this is in the Toronto area. Is this best practice for a developer? Because now you have 800 people who thought they had a chance at affordable housing. Again, something that it just feels like it's such an anomaly in, in the city. It's, you know, it's not accessible. It's not available in our city as much as it needs to be. Um, is this fair for an, a developer to do something like this? Yeah. So, Maggie, first of all, it clearly demonstrates the huge need uh, and desperation of people looking for affordable housing. The good thing is that there was knowledge out there that these affordable housing units were available, which was always my concern, because in the city of Toronto, as it stands right now, you basically find out about some of these units by luck, right? Because there's not a centralized system where you can say, okay, I'm looking for affordable housing. Not social housing. There is a centralized list for the social housing, but for the affordable housing, which is different, um, there there isn't. And so the system that the city has for developers, so this is not really their choice. It's what's in, in effect right now in the city. It's usually agreed with the city that this is a system they use. They, they advertise it and then they, they do the draw. Um, the city is... Uh, um, uh, creating a centralized portal. Um, it was approved uh, at the end of last term, I think in June, um, that uh, all these affordable housings are going to be on a centralized portal and people are going to be able to go and see it. You know, like you see on the viewit.ca if you're looking yep. for an apartment in the yep. city, eventually you're going to have that opportunity. And then there was a big discussion if we should have 
some as a lottery, some as a centralized list. And so the city voted to have on the initial tenant out because you need to do it more rapidly, and especially when you have a, a full brand new apartment that you need to uh, to uh, get the tenants for, to have a percentage as a lottery, but then eventually uh, after the first uh, wave of tenants come in, then it, it comes from a centralized uh, list that the city will have. So I think that is the way to go. Yeah. Um, now, keep in mind, for example, in New York, the majority of them, they still do buy lotteries, but we did have a big discussion at, at city council um, and it was agreed that there's going to be, and not only at city council, this was actually discussed with nonprofits and uh, developers that build affordable housing. Okay. And it's funny because the survey was done and it was 50-50. Uh, 50% said do uh, do um, a, a lottery, some because there's benefits and 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 and. Uh, um, uh, things that don't work as, as well. Um, but then I think we went with 75-25. The city uh, decided to go that way. So there's always going to be some portion of, of lottery, but the majority will eventually be by uh, a, a list that the, the city will maintain. And I know I'm supposed to say goodbye to you now, but would you be willing to stay on for a little bit long? Because I have so many other questions that I have for you. I'd love to pick your brain on some other hot topics. Sure, in the news. Yeah. Okay, hold on. We're going to take a quick break. We're gonna, hold on. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more with Anna Bilo. Stay with us. We're uh, continuing our conversation with former deputy mayor and chair of planning and housing, now the head of affordable housing and public affairs at Dream, Anna Bilo. Anna, thanks for hanging in there and sticking with us for another segment. But I just feel like there's so many issues in our city right now, and you are just the perfect person to pick pick a brain on when it comes to some of these uh, some of these topics. So thanks for hanging in with us. My pleasure. So, you know, Anna, I think about Ontario Place and I have such fond memories of it growing up. I was talking about it earlier in the show. I remember the log ride going there on school trips. And so hearing the proposed plans, I will be honest with you, Anna, I don't know how I feel about the proposed plans. I know that there are a lot of emotions around the idea of it being owned by this Austrian company that wants to develop it into a water park slash spa slash sauna, um, privatizing public land, um, and really, you know, from what we hear and see, kind of an eyesore um, to our waterfront. And we're, we as taxpayers will be on the hook for this uh, parking lot at the tune of $450 million. What do you think about this? Um. So like, like you, I also have um, many memories of Ontario Place. I think, you know, I, I, came, I, I came to Toronto when I was 15. So I think my first concerts were around there, right? At yeah. the Budweiser stage. And, and so, um, but I have to be honest with you. For me, uh, getting to the city at the age of 15, I really enjoyed going down there. But there's two things that always um, surprised me. It was how inaccessible I felt that place was. Mm. It's like, it's so hard to get there, right? It didn't feel like it had good transit infrastructure. It was really inaccessible. And it was not, um, it, it could be so much more. I always felt that it could be more. Um, I am somebody that likes to go to uh, some of these public spaces and I like to pick up a coffee. I like to like, I don't understand why we don't have more of that in our parks, for example. I, maybe it's just 
the way that I was raised and, and brought up. So I do believe that there was um, an intentional uh, redesign of Ontario Place that needed to be done. This garage, my God, half a billion dollars, what I could do with half a billion dollars. Let me tell yeah. you. <laughs> um, and especially now that finally, I think the the realization and the plans and kudos to, to this provincial government to put the station in there, the, the Ontario lines going all the way there, yeah. the GO station in there. This is so close to downtown. Again, the last thing you want is to invite everybody from uh, the, the uh, adjacent municipalities to come to our downtown by car. What you need to do is create the transit infrastructure which is being done, by the way, to have people comfortably coming by public transportation. And, and that is happening. It is in their plan. So I don't understand why we would need to spend half a billion dollars for a parking garage um, to benefit just a, a spa, mm-hmm. right? So it, 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 it really makes no sense um, having more activity there. Absolutely. Um, I think given the intensification that is happening downtown, given the need for parks, I think the desire uh, and the vision to have more public space uh, and to have it there uh, would be appropriate, given the lack of space that we have downtown. I mean, if you look at the, the city of Toronto downtown, the growth that had happened and the very small parks that we were able to to get, but how much it costs uh, to create a park in downtown Toronto is quite expensive. So with the Ontario Place right there, with access to transit, why not turn that into more of a park for um, the density that you are creating in the downtown? I think it's a missed opportunity. Again, with, with I, I am not somebody that is totally against some private um, uh, enterprises in some of these lands. I think you need to have a I love, I think, I think, you know, I would love to be able to go down there and be able to go to a restaurant or even go to, you know, to a massage. You yeah. know, so it's fine. But it's, it's the, it's the, the scale that you're doing it, right? It's, it's what is the priority? What is the main, the main focus? And that what is um, an auxiliary use to that versus the spa being the main purpose and then the green space seems like it is an afterthought. And I think it should be flipped the other way around. And I think the feeling of, you know, for residents of Toronto to feel like they still have a piece of that space, that it's still, it's still ours, at least, you know, it's yeah. still something that we can enjoy without having to shell out 40 plus dollars. You know, like you know, when you go to a, a concert down at Budweiser, that's going to cost you a hefty penny. Uh, to go down there to just so just to have space that we could enjoy, I think is what I'm hearing from people who are concerned. Exactly, exactly. It's, and it, it's the access, it's the destination. It could be a destination. It could be a destination for the entire city by transit. Why have you know 500 car garage? Yeah. It's um, and and you know the the numbers have been thrown around uh less than there's been uh, yeah i think it, i heard 250 million and then some some experts came saying well it will be more like 450 and and who knows it's not a, a, a an easy area to construct uh the waterbed might be much higher like it why why do that when you can have a wonderful wonderful um uh facility in there that people access by transit 
yeah. which again, kudos to the government. They're building it. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, one of the unfortunate things about transit is that we in the city have not done transit well in the past. I mean, I have been one of those people as recently as last year sitting in a very long line just to get into the parking lot to go see a movie or sorry, a, a, a concert at Budweiser. And so I understand that the parking situation is real in that area. But I do agree with you. Spending close to half of, you know, half a billion dollars on parking is not the solution. But I think there needs to be if we're going to do transit, we need to do it well, so that people who live outside of the city who want to come in, it's also accessible for them. I, I, wanna... I, I, I think that it was not the problem of doing it well. Yeah. The worst than that is that we didn't do it at all for many decades. Yeah, that's true. And now we're completely trying on this catch up mode that we're trying to catch up to all the density, the growth that the city is having. Um, you know, we're, we are the largest, the, 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 the um, fastest growing city in North America. Yeah. And growth needs to be managed. And, and I think for, for decades, we really didn't see and plan well for the growth that we're experiencing right now. And that's Very the true. problem for transit. Very true. Okay, I want to squeeze in this last uh, topic because I want to get your thoughts on it. So earlier this week, a resident of the city tweeted at Diane Sachs, the counselor for uh, Ward 11, a picture of a street in the city with a fairly large pothole with the caption, we should not be okay with our city looking this way. Huge hazard to cyclists and probably even drivers. This person tagged Diane as well as Chris Moyes uh, of uh, Ward 13. Diane responded saying, if you don't like the city in such disrepair, then send in a submission to the budget committee and ask the city to raise enough revenue to pay for a good quality of services and infrastructure. It won't happen unless people speak up for it. Was that, I mean, she got a lot of heat for the way she responded to that because she is a city councilor. That is her job. Uh, was that a big faux pas for Diane to have done that? And how do you come out of that uh, and fix this problem? Because, again, it's her job to take the concerns of constituents and actually bring them to City Hall. Yeah, I actually saw the tweet and I did one of those. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> um, let, let me put it this way. I, I think that um, Torontonians need to uh, get involved. In their in their city, in their province, we need to get involved, and we as politicians need to motivate people. Need to have those conversations, and I, I'm, I'm going to give Diane the benefit of the doubt. I think that's what she was trying to say, right? She was trying to say to this constituent, um, you know, we all have a responsibility as well, right? We need you to speak up. We need you to to get involved and to to be part of the conversation. Now, what I think she she could have said it in a totally different tone and she could have said, listen, this is what I'm doing, acknowledging that she is a city councilor. She has that responsibility and explain what what she's doing. And then maybe as an add on say, but it would be really helpful and I think will be really important for people to listen to er Torontonians on a regular basis and then enroll people in this movement to create this change. Right. But not abdicate from her role and her responsibility as a city councilor. And I think that she, you know, it's, it's really hard. It's 140 characters. So she just went for your responsibility and yeah. your, what you need to do and missed everything else. And so it came out as a little bit abrupt. And I think that's how people took it. But um, I think where she was trying to get at was the fact that 
you know, we all have the responsibility, right? We all have the, uh, you know, I, I remember when I was a city councilor, you know, one of the processes that we have, for example, to initiate speed humps is to have a petition uh, to start that because it takes time to study. And a lot of times we would get like one resident calling in saying, we want speed humps in our street. And we would start the process, spend staff resources, and then it gets completely shut down by everybody on the street. And so the intent is to have that resident, you know, have you talked to your neighbors? Is this something that, you know, more people in the street want? And very often when we would say to the residents, you know, you need to initiate a petition. Have you talked to and they would turn to us right away and say, well, that's not my job. That's your job. It's like, it's our city, yeah, it's right? A it's our neighborhoods. We all have a responsibility to, you know, check in with our neighbors, to have these conversations, uh, not only at election time, but especially in municipal politics on a regular time. So uh, I think that's what she was trying to get at. And fortunately, it didn't come as <laughs> most Find way. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Anna, for your time and for sticking with us for an additional segment. So appreciate your voice in this and all the best on your new role. Thank you, Maggie. Thank you. Have a great weekend. You as well. That was former deputy mayor and chair of planning and housing. And now the new uh, head of affordable housing and public affairs at Dream, Anna Bilo. Stick with us. You're listening to Toronto This Weekend on 640 Toronto.